This morning we are continuing a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you've been with us over the course of this series, we've called the series One. Because we've seen that in the, uh, in, the, in the letter to the Ephesians, what Paul is doing is telling them one story about what God is doing in Christ to bring all things in the world together. Sin has broken our world. It's broken us and alienated us from God. It's alienated us from one another. And even in our own souls, it's, it's fractured us. And in Christ, God is bringing us back together. He's bringing back together our fragmented lives. He's bringing back together our broken human relationships in the church. And ultimately, he's bringing back together the whole world under one king, Jesus. And so, uh, we look this morning at Ephesians chapter 5. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? morning is Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything, is, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, over the past uh, several months uh, since, uh, since, uh, since he passed away, the world has been filled with articles and retrospectives and uh, things written to honor Prince, the, uh, the great musician. As I read literally dozens of these things over the past couple of months, uh, one stood out as particularly interesting. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times uh, entitled, Prince's Holy Lust. 
prince's holy lust. In the article, uh, the point of the article was dealing with this thing about Prince. If you're familiar at all with his movie, with his uh, his persona or his music, he uh, he managed to do two things pretty consistently. Uh, one was talk about uh, things pertaining to spirituality and religion. Uh, he had kind of an esoteric uh, belief system. Uh, the other is that he had an in-your-face sexuality uh, to him, constantly kind of flaunting and putting it, uh, pushing boundaries. And this is what uh, the author of this article wrote about Prince. This is the erotic intertwined with the divine. The Judeo-Christian ethic seems to demand that sexuality and spirituality be walled off from each other. But in Prince's personal cosmology, they were one. Sex to him was a part of the spiritual life. The God he worshipped wants us to have passionate and meaningful sex. The Christian ethic seems to demand that sexuality and spirituality be walled off from each other. I remember reading that and thinking, uh, that is just so not true. Um, but I think it is the way that, uh, that Christianity, our place in the world, is often viewed. That we have a, a view of the world where things, spiritual things are good and bodily things are bad, right? Church is good, sex is bad. And they should be walled off from each other. Uh, but what we're getting into, this section of Ephesians, is where Paul is starting to actually say that in Christ, there's actually no part of your life that's walled off from your spirituality. Uh, that the gospel, the good news of what uh, God has done in Christ, touches every, every piece of your life. That there's nothing in your life that's walled off from the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But if that's true, then it changes absolutely everything. And so that's what Paul's starting to get into in Ephesians 5 and 6. He's laid out this huge story about what God is doing in the world and what he's doing for us. And now in Ephesians 5 and going on, he says, if this is true, if this story is true, then everything about you is spiritual. Everything about you is a, an issue of the gospel. So you can't look at your life and say, well, I'm a Christian, but, well, that has nothing to do with my job, or that has nothing to do with my bank account, or that has nothing to do with my relationships, it has nothing to do with my marriage, my relationship to my children, my relationship to my parents, or even my, my sexual relationships, that, that most intimate physical relationship. That everything, everything about us is touched by the gospel, uh, by what God has, has done for us in Christ. And Paul, not wasting any time, starts in Ephesians 5 with the call to, to flee and to leave and to protect the church from what he calls sexual immorality, from sexual brokenness. He uses this analogy. He's talking, uh, he's contrasting two ways of life. The, that there ought to be a difference between the way of life outside, the community of God, the people of God, and the way of life inside, the people of God. And he contrasts it by saying that the church is to be a light in a world of darkness. In a world marked by darkness, we're to shine and be to live our lives, even that part of our lives, in the light, in the light of Christ. This is a consistent theme in Paul's letters, and I think it's because, you know, sexuality is such an important part of our lives. It's such an intimate part of our lives. 
that there, maybe more than anywhere else, the, dark, the darkness is darker. It feels darker. It feels more isolating. It can feel more shaming. And the light of the gospel shines brighter. The healing that's offered to us there, uh, the way of life outlined for us there, shines all the brighter. You know, I'm aware that this is a difficult subject. I'm, I might be the most aware one in the room right now uh, of the fact that this is a difficult subject. Um, it's difficult for us for a number of reasons. For many of us, it, 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 it hits on raw nerves. It hits on areas where we feel guilt and shame, uh, where we experience frustrated longing uh, in ways that it, that it maybe hasn't. Uh, it's difficult for us because uh, there's children uh, here in the room and there's children in our lives, and uh, we want to do this in a way that's sensitive to them and to their needs and their development. So as we wade into this topic that is sensitive to our hearts, I'd love for us just to bow again and, uh, and pray for God's grace in this. Lord Jesus, to talk about sexuality, uh, to talk about sexual purity and sexual immorality, uh, is uh, to wade through a minefield. Lord, for many of us, uh, the very mention of sexuality and brokenness in church makes us feel shame, it makes us feel guilt. It makes us aware of, of the brokenness of our past and the shame of our present. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you uh, would speak your grace into our lives and into our hearts. Lord Jesus, where your light shines, it's a healing light and a, a gracious light, even as it reveals. And so, Lord, I pray that you, uh, the one who took our shame and nailed it to the cross, uh, would help us in the midst of our shame. Lord Jesus, I pray um, as we wade into this territory that you would protect us from self-righteousness. Um, Lord, that you would protect us from guilt. Uh, Lord, that you would protect us um, from either uh, delighting to talk and to titillate and to joke, but that we'd be able to be frank enough uh, to talk about the issues. Lord, your church is floundering and hurting in the world because of our inability to talk about the sexual reality of our lives and those relationships um, and to apply the truth of the gospel to them. And so, Lord, I pray that as we bring uh, even this part of our lives and our community uh, into your presence, uh, that there we would find your grace and your wisdom and your healing, that in a world gone mad, in a world that is unable to even talk uh, in coherent ways about sex, Lord, that you would help us to find the sanity and the wholeness uh, that comes from the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, what Paul is telling them here uh, as we start in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What he's saying in this passage is that, that, that sexuality is deeply important. It's sacred. It's so sacred that, it's, that it should be above and beyond coarse joking. Right? It should be above and beyond being treated lightly. That it's something that's to be treated with, with some seriousness to it. And yet he says here that, that all uh, sexual immorality is to not even be named. The word that he uses there for sexual immorality, uh, in older versions of the Bible it was uh, often translated fornication. It's from the Greek word porneia, uh, from which we get our word pornography. What he's saying is in, in a world that's been marked by Pornography in a world that's been pornographized, a world where uh, the dignity of human intimacy and the beauty of sexuality is cheapened, where it's often used to hurt or demean others or to satisfy ourselves, uh, 
The Christian walk is to be different. Uh, it's to stand out and be unique. You know, we know uh, some of what, uh, of what this was like in Paul's world. If you've ever visited, if you ever have a chance to, uh, it's amazing to visit the city of Pompeii, which was an ancient city frozen in time through a volcanic eruption in Italy, an ancient Roman city. And if you ever do the tour of Pompeii and see this well-preserved uh, city in the Roman Empire, just very matter-of-factly on your, on your audio tour or on your tour through the city, they'll go, okay, well, here's the bank, here's the restaurant, here's the brothel, here's the, the law court. And you go, what, what's going on? And right there in the city square, there was a brothel. Uh, we know through uh, some of the research that's been done that, uh, that prostitution was such a significant part of the Roman Empire that it was a major income stream within Imperial Rome. The whole, so like Las Vegas, right, where the, in, where the economy of the city is driven by sexuality. Uh, the whole Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, that was normal. Uh, it was a city that was, it was a, uh, an empire that was largely lawless, where the most powerful people in the city could essentially do what they wanted uh, with very little protection for the most vulnerable uh, among the populace in areas of sexuality. And yet in that world, we know that Paul's uh, instructions, that the church shine like a light, that it be noticeably different, actually was true. We have letters uh, written in the first couple of centuries of the church. So in roughly 100 years after the birth and death of Christ, in what's become known as the Epistle of Diognetius, this is a letter from a non-Christian writing about his experience of Christians, says uh, on one hand how normal Christians were how they dress just like everybody else, how they have jobs just like everybody else, how they're like normal neighbors. And yet this stood out to him. Christians share their meals, but not their sexual partners. Uh, so it was normal that they shared meals, they were just a part of the society, but yet they were monogamous. Husbands and wives lived together. We see it again in the Apology of Aristides. Aristides was a Christian, uh, writing to a Roman emperor, Hadrian, about the way of life of Christians. He says, Christians are good citizens because they do not commit adultery nor fornication. Their men keep themselves from every unlawful union. Sexual immorality, freedom of, of sexual expression was usually something reserved just for men. In ancient cultures, it wasn't uncommon for men to be able to do basically whatever they want, but for women to, to be marked by even the death penalty, right, in, if, in the light of, uh, of adultery. But yet in the Christian circles, even the men were marked by their faithfulness by their sobriety in this area. So they, the Christians stood out in a dark world. We have to ask ourselves if this is still the case, or what would it be like if it was still the case? Can you imagine a, a non-Christian publication, the New York Times, running an article saying, you know what, Christians are interesting. They have computers, right? The men have computers, but yet they never look at pornography. Right, they go to the gym just like everybody else, but Christian men don't ogle the women around them. Sure, they get married, but, but they're faithful to their spouses, and they don't, they don't commit adultery on one another. Can you imagine that? Well, you can't imagine it for a couple of reasons. One, because if it was true, it probably wouldn't get written about. And the other is because statistically it's not true. Right? Statistically, the difference uh, between the sexual ethics within the church and outside the church are remarkably similar. Right? In a the people of God for most of our history, from Abraham to today, have often been noted for our difference from the world around us in the area of sexual ethics. 
And yet today, I think very often we're, we're just like everybody else. We're just, we've gone, aw gone along with the culture around us. You know, I think it's true because nobody likes to feel different, right? Nobody likes to feel like we're, you're a prude. Nobody likes to feel like you're constantly kind of swimming upstream. It gets, it gets hard. Not only that, but we have these internal desires. So you've got, you've got external forces and you've got internal desires that sometimes war against our best intentions. Right? And so we can feel torn and we can just kind of go along with what's expected. We can go along with what the world says is right in how we treat our bodies and how we love others and how we give ourselves to others. And yet maybe more than any other area, this is an area where it's foolish to go along with the world because the rest of the world is saying we don't know what we're doing in this area. Secular research is showing that what we thought uh, when internet pornography just exploded onto the scene. Now, there's articles in the Atlantic going, hey, we've opened Pandora's box on this. What we thought was a freedom of expression is actually hurting real relationships. It's hurting actual marriages between real men and real women. We're, we've entered into a, a time where the whole world is confused about what it means to be a man and to be a woman, what it means to enter into intimate union, what it means to be a person, a sexual person. And so we need, uh, we need to learn to live our lives uh, in a way that's different, a way that doesn't just drift uh, with the cultural winds. And we need to learn to do it not because Christians are prudish, right? Not uh, because, as the New York Times article said, we, we believe in walling off that part of our lives, that it's dirty, that it's to be kept at a distance. No, we need to do it. We need to talk about it. We need to come to understand it precisely because... It needs to be impacted by the gospel. The gospel tells a different story about human beings and human identity and about human intimacy and human love than the world around us does. So we need to learn uh, what it means to, to live in a redeemed and transformed sexuality. And so as we look uh, at this passage, we're going to look at five shifts uh, five marks of a redeemed sexuality from darkness to light, from emptiness to fullness, from covetousness to gratitude, from self-serving to self-giving, and from self-pleasing to God-pleasing. I'll say them again. You don't have to get them all down now. First, from darkness to light. Paul says that what happens uh, when, when you come to know Christ uh, is that you go from the realm of darkness to the realm of light. Uh, that life lived in secret and in shame and in darkness gets called and brought into light. The light of God is revealing. It takes things done in secret, exposes them to public, exposes them to God. But it's also healing. It's transforming. The, the light of God, the light of God's grace uh, touches us and turns what's been hidden, into dark, hidden in darkness into light. Here's the thing about uh, our sex lives and sexual sin is that it thrives in darkness. It thrives in secrecy. It, it lives in shame. You know, we, we all know sins in every other area of our lives, right? I mean, I, I know what it is to be angry. I know what it is to be greedy. I know what it is... Um, I, I, you know, we know what sin is in other areas of our lives. And yet there's not the temptation to hide that quite as deeply as there is on, on areas of, of sexual brokenness. There's something about it that tends to just make us say, because it's so sacred, because it feels so core to who we are, that if it were ever known, if anybody ever found out about us, 
Anybody ever found out the levels at which we struggle, the levels at which we've hurt others or taken from others? Then we could never be known. We could never be forgiven. We could never be loved. And so we, we hide it away. We've said here uh, before that, that great, uh, great saying within the 12-step movement that ultimately we're as sick as our secrets, right? And we're as sick as those sins that we hide, the things that we, that we can't tell anybody else, that we can't even name to God have an incredible power to lodge themselves in our souls and to make us sicker over time, to, to make us uh, waste away and to make us distance ourselves from God and from one another. And so what Paul is saying is that in the church, in the community that's marked by God's grace, sex should be talked about openly and honestly. It, like everything else, there should be a freedom to confess it and to come clean into the light. That it shouldn't be talked about crassly or jokingly, but that it should be something that's on the table. Now, not maybe you don't walk into church on a Sunday morning, right? Just get up here and say, hey, I've got an announcement to make and, and share everything about yourself. I know that that could be exposing. We're not going to put you in a place where you have to do that. But it does mean that you should seek a community of faith, a group of people where everything about your life is on the table, uh, where there's nothing that you struggle with. There's nothing that you've done that you feel ashamed to share with where you can, you can be really and truly and deeply known. You know, there's a chance that you're sitting here and, and, and as I say those words, you're going, okay, yeah, right. There's, I've been in churches. I know what this is like. I, I know what God's like. There's no way that I'm sharing my story, my history, my present. And I just want to remind you that the Jesus who calls us into the light all throughout his earthly ministry, dealt with people who were shackled by sexual shame with incredible mercy and tenderness. Right, Whether it's the, the woman at the well that he meets who had five husbands, right, who'd been, who'd been in five relationships, and Jesus moves not away from her in her shame, but towards her. Or maybe it's the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus to be stoned. And instead of stoning her, Jesus turns away her accusers and embraces her and sends her into a new life of fullness. Right, or maybe it's the prostitute who comes to Jesus with the fruit of her labor, this costly perfume, and anoints his feet, and he accepts her worship and her love. That Jesus dealt with the sexually broken with incredible gentleness and tenderness and mercy. We can fear coming into the light, but look what Paul says happens. This little... We think this is a segment of an old hymn uh, that's, that's quoted here in verse 14. It's probably set apart in your Bible. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The love, of, the light of his grace and mercy will shine on you. I don't know, you know, I, I thought about this uh, in the midst of, of writing this. Um, the fact that we would have some, some middle schoolers and high schoolers here with us as we do this. And I thought, you know, if, if current day me could go back in time uh, to, to adolescent me and tell him one thing, well, there, there's a lot of things, but I think one thing that I would say is for God's sake, please do not try to live this part of your life on your own. Uh, don't believe that you have to keep this part of your life in darkness. Don't believe that you can't talk to your parents about the questions you have in this area. Don't think that this is something that you're going to figure out on your own. Uh, don't think that you'll, I'll just learn about it from friends and on the internet. I'll figure it out. 
No, be willing to come and, and admit what you don't know, admit what you're trying to figure out. Develop friendships where you can, can bring this into a relationship. Develop a relationship within the church where you can talk about this. According to Paul, literally everything is at stake in this, in the way that you handle this most intimate part of your life. So please don't feel like this is something that you have to figure out on your own. Don't figure out that this is something you have to grope your way through darkness uh, to figure out uh, how to handle this part of your life. Live with it uh, in the openness of God's grace, in the openness of community. So he calls us from darkness to light. He calls us from emptiness to fullness. He uses uh, the words here, let no empty talk be among you. The word empty there is the same word that's often used in Ecclesiastes, where the author talks about the vanity uh, the emptiness that marks life apart from Christ. Here's the story uh, that our culture, that our world tells us about sexuality. Our world tells us that you are empty, that you live with a fundamental emptiness in your life, and that if you don't find fulfillment in sexual relationships, then you will not live a fulfilled life. That we live with an emptiness, that we live with a desire, that we live with a hunger, and that if you don't meet that desire, if you don't follow that desire, if that desire isn't fulfilled in every way that you ever dreamed of, that your human life will be empty and that you won't flourish and you won't be fulfilled. We live in a world uh, where the one thing that's believed to be inerrant, the thing that's above and beyond questioning, is desire. Right? Whatever you long for can be yours. That there's never a situation in which it would be right to say no to yourself. To say, no, that this desire may not be a desire that I'm supposed to seek to have filled right now, this moment, in this way. And so I think that this is one of the ways that we unwittingly go on with the world when we believe about ourselves, that our lives are marked by an emptiness, a hunger. And if we cannot get it filled, then we'll never be satisfied. That we can never say no to it. Apart from that, Paul says, no, no, that is not your story in Christ. In Christ, your life is not marked by an emptiness. You're not left with a vacuum of a heart that you're left to take and seek to plug that vacuum into any human relationship that you want to draw life out of. No, your life is not marked by an emptiness, but marked by a fullness. It's marked, it actually tells us the opposite. Right? Not only is your heart not, locked, not marked by an emptiness that you have to look for human intimacy to fill, but actually you're marked with, an, with a desire for communion with God. That you're made for an intimacy that no human intimacy will ever fill. And that if you take that desire, if you take that vacuum and continue to go from, from human relationship to human relationship to human relationship, it's only going to continue to leave you empty. Because it cannot be satisfied that way. Look at what Paul says. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right? Notice what he says. The Spirit has filled you. You're marked not by an emptiness, but by a fullness. Intimacy among you isn't about this, this emptiness that you're looking to suck life out of others. It's marked by a fullness, and you're now looking to give life to others. It's marked by an overflowing love, an overflowing life, that you are not marked by emptiness, but by fullness. You don't know how radical it was in Paul's world for him to claim that you could have a fulfilled human life 
and be single for your whole life. Right? Paul uh, was a man who was never married. Jesus was the most perfectly, perfectly human human being that ever lived, the most perfectly full life that there ever was. And he was single for his whole life. In the ancient world, even more than, than now, there was this incredible pressure to identify, to, to, to get married and to be within the system of a family, to have children, and that any human life that wasn't marked by those relationships uh, was viewed as empty. And yet, Paul, over and over again in the church, lays down another way of life. That yes, you can live a fulfilled life in marriage, in a faithful, committed marriage. But you can also live a fulfilled human life through a lifetime of chaste singleness. That that is an option that's not less than, it's not empty, because in Christ you've already been filled. You've been filled and marked by the fullness that, that, you, that you long for and that we look for. And that in the church you have a community that can, that can fulfill and can uphold it. I mean, it's such a beautiful picture of a community that's full of the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a group of people that are just sitting around and going, oh, I sure do hope, you know, I sure do hope that a man comes around so that then I can have a fulfilled life. I sure do hope that, that a woman comes around so I can be married and then I'll be happy. No, it's a, it's a community whose whole life is a song of joy and thanksgiving because of their fullness in Christ. You're marked not by an emptiness that we have to frantically look to get filled, but by a fullness in Christ, fullness of communion. Thirdly, we go from a, covet a life marked by covetousness to a life marked by gratitude. Verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Later on, he says, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater. There was a tradition already by the time that Paul's writing of, uh, within the Jewish community of looking at covetousness, uh, sometimes translated greediness, this, this rampant, unquestioned, and unchecked desire for more. To view that as actually kind of a summary of the whole law, right? That if you were going to steal, if you were going to murder, if you were going to commit adultery, all of these things were marked by a heart that was covetous that was desiring more and more, that was never satisfied, never happy, always wanting more stuff, more relationship, all of those things. And so uh, Paul, interestingly, here and in Colossians, when talking about sexual brokenness and sexual immorality, uh, caps off all of the lists with covetousness. And so sometimes you can look at that and go, That's a, it's strange, I guess he's talking about sex and greed. But no, he's talking about all of it, marked by a heart, that's never satisfied, right? Lust, fundamentally, fundamentally lust is the attempt to use others to satisfy our own hearts, to satisfy our own needs. It's, it takes the, uh, what we do in a consumer economy where we buy and we purchase and we try to fill ourselves up with more and more stuff, and it just commodifies people. It says, well, I'm going to do the same thing with my, with my intimate relationships. I'm going to use those relationships for my own desires, for my own needs whether with our eyes or with our bodies. Uh, lust is covetousness. And it's never satisfied. It's like a, a, uh, Jonathan Edwards says that lust is like a fire 
uh, that we think if we throw more wood on the fire that it's going to get satisfied. But it doesn't. What happens to a fire if you feed it? It just grows and grows and grows and demands more and more. Right? It's like a fire. It's a covetous heart. And yet Paul says that the antidote uh, for our human covetousness, for, our, for our, our desires in this way, is gratitude. It's thanksgiving. Uh, over and over in this passage, he talks about gratitude and thanksgiving, that the mark of the church is thanksgiving and gratitude. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Uh, to Paul, the, the antidote for a lustful heart, the antidote for a heart that always wants more and more and more, is gratitude. Uh, that the Christian life is to be marked by gratitude. If covetousness is a heart that can never be satisfied without more and better, uh, without satisfying itself through using others, gratitude is a heart that looks at what it's been given and, over, and is just overwhelmed with thankfulness. It's overwhelmed and says, thank you, God, for everything that's come from your hands, everything that you've given to me. Supremely, right, our cause of gratitude is in Christ. That you've given me your very self. You've given me love. Uh, that every human relationship is just a caricature. You've given me that kind of love in Christ. So I can be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. But it also means that we can look at the circumstances of our lives. If God has given us singleness. And he's called us to chastity within that. We can receive that with gratitude. We can say thank you. We can say thank you God. That you're enough for me in the midst of this. I'm not empty, I'm full. It means if we're married, that we can look at our spouse with gratitude. With gratitude, with saying, thank you, God, that you've given me this person. Right? That's, you know, the reality of, of where adultery starts, of where sexual brokenness in marriage starts, is when we cease to look at our spouse with overwhelming gratitude, that God has given you this person. You stop looking at them is, the only, is God's sole provision for romance and intimacy in your life. Right? Which is what they are. Not, I mean, there's still room for intimacy and friendships, of course. But as far as, as sexual fulfillment and romance and intimacy, that your spouse is God's answer to that question for you. And when we cease to receive that with gratitude and we start going, well, I wonder, wonder what else is out there. I wonder what other ways... Of satisfaction. What other places where I can taste intimacy are out there? That's where the, the seed starts, whether just in an emotional form of wandering from your marriage for intimacy or in physical. But the gratitude uh, is a heart's antidote to lust. We go from self-pleasing to God-pleasing. You know, we, I think our culture tells us that sexuality is something that's, a, that, that's for us and primarily for our own pleasure. Primarily for our own satisfaction. But as a Christian, you look at your life and go, you know what? Actually, no part of my life is just about my pleasure. Right? Every part of my life is about the glory of God. It's about pleasing God. It's about living life in submission to God. In verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That we're to set our hearts on being pleasing to God with how we use our bodies. That the gospel changes the way that we use our body. And we're gonna I love what he says. You're going to have to seek to be discerning. Right? Human beings over the last 2,000 years have figured out more and more creative and more technologically advanced ways of satisfying our lusts. 
And so you're not going to be able to find, you're not going to be able to look up in the Bible and find perfectly clear answers on everything that presents itself to you in this world. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a Bible book where Paul talks about pornography. There's not a Bible book uh, where Paul uh, talks about everything that we're going to be presented with. There's not a, there's not a book where, it, where he helps you figure out uh, which of the 56 gender combinations that Facebook makes available to you that you should pick. Right? He's dealing with a different world. And yet, the scripture, there's the, the foundation here through which we can discern what's pleasing to God. It does have a ton to say about lust. It does have a ton to say about chastity and singleness and faithfulness and marriage. And so he says, take what's clear and then discern. Learn to apply it. Learn to live with wisdom within it, within your own context, within your, within your own world, with your goal being to be pleasing to the Lord. So we go from being self-pleasing to God-pleasing, and then finally, from self-serving to self-giving. From self-serving to self-giving. We've said that the emptiness uh, of our hearts can lead us to use others to try to fill ourselves. And yet look at what Paul says at the beginning and end of this passage as its bookends. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then uh, in verse 20, giving thanks always and in everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We've said over and over uh, in, this, in this section of Ephesians that love, love is giving yourself to another, laying down your life for another, not seeking to use another, but seeking to give to another. And that is supremely true, maybe, maybe nowhere more clearly true uh, than in uh, our, the lives of sexual intimacy. That, that God-honoring, neighbor-serving uh, sexual intimacy is marked by serving others, not principally serving ourselves. You're called to serve others in this way beyond just the person that, that you're married to. Right? How do you, well, that's weird. How do, you, how do you serve those around you? You serve them by protecting the dignity uh, of their own bodies and how you look at them and how you relate to them. You do it by dignifying and honoring their marriage, by the way that you build friendships uh, within that. You're called to honor them by the way that you protect them and the way that you serve them. And you're called to do it as you enter into your marriage. Uh, that marriage is learning the art of taking somebody who, if you live with each other long enough, you learn that approach this and everything from different ways, different ways of, of seeing things and approaching things. And it's learning to lay down your demands, lay down your desires, uh, to serve and to fulfill the desires uh, of another. And in that, uh, to see a glimpse of, of the, the other-centered love that Jesus shows us in the gospel, entering into the mystery uh, of the self-giving love of Christ. Let's pray.